Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I am your host, Laura Reeves. Here at the Good Dog Pod, we are all about supporting dog breeders and responsible dog ownership. We provide dog lovers with the latest updates in canine health and veterinary care, animal legislation and legal advocacy, canine training and behavior science, and dog breeding practices. Subscribe and join our mission today to help give our dogs the world they deserve. Welcome, everyone. I am Laura Reeves, host of the Good Dog Pod, and I have Kristen Sandsteed, Big Moose Dog Training, and we're going to talk about a topic that a lot of people have interest in that has been expressed a lot randomly on social media of late, and I think it's a really good one to kind of drill down on. So reactive dogs, Kristen. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I'm tickle pink to be here. I've actually been kind of nervous about doing this podcast because (laughs) reactivity is a very big, broad topic with lots of working parts. Mm -hmm. And so what I was nervous about is that somebody was going to see this topic and click on it and think there was just going to be a step one, two, three. Oh, you mean there's not an easy answer to this, Kristen? Yeah. Oh my God, no, really? <laughs> yeah. And so I was nervous that people were going to listen thinking there was just going to be all these genius answers that were going to work right away and then feel like, oh, no, <laughs> because there's a lot of it depends Yes. in this subject. Yes. So let's talk about what reactivity is and can be? Let's give it a definition. Let's put a bracket on it. Fantastic. So I define reactivity as dogs that are using distance increasing skills, which a lot of those overlap into things that we describe as aggressive behavior, right? That sharp, rapid fire barking or straining at the end of the leash and barking charging the door or the fence line when that dog is at home and the UPS guy Mm -hmm. or the meter maid comes. Mm -hmm. Those full frontal, hard, fast, weight in the front end, stompy kind of approaches. And those are all in the dog world, distance increasing signals, which means I want more space. Could you please move away from me? I love that. And Kristen, just to interrupt you just for half a second, but I really want to kind of put a bracket on that because what we're actually talking about is people learning to speak dog. Right. And dogs have distance increasing signals, things that they do that mean go away, go away, go away. And they also have distance decreasing signals that mean come here, come here, come here. So obviously a growl is a distance increasing signal, a tooth display. Mm-hmm. Please give me more space or I have this bone I really don't want to share, which that's how I feel about cheesecake. So I can relate to that. <laughs> I will stab you with a fork. <laughs> oh, yes, I will. <laughs> there will be blood on my cheesecake and I'll scrape it off and eat around it. <laughs> so I can relate to that. I have some food aggression issues myself. So I get that. And then distance decreasing signals. Obviously, the play valve that everybody knows where their dog dips their head and their elbows to the ground, but their tush and tail are way up in the air. 
A butt swing is one that mm-hmm. I see often in my play groups where the dog kind of swings their butt around and does a little butt bounce off little the check, neighbor's yeah. dog. Yeah, yeah. It's a hip check, not a shoulder check, because right. a shoulder check is generally not friendly, but a hip check is. Different conversation. <laughs> yeah. Circle wags, having that tail go in a complete wooden windmill circle, mm-hmm. that's play and come hither type behavior. So... Dogs speak primarily through body language. And so a lot of things that are also qualified as aggression are just their way of telling us more space, less space. In this case, more space. So whenever you're working with an aggressive dog or a reactive dog, ideally you want to stay sub-threshold, meaning you want to stay so that dog doesn't ever feel like they have to spark that fight or flight response. And do you see dogs, because I do, dogs that are reactive but not aggressive? So let's define that because, yes, yep. I do. Yep. So I see dogs that are very, very reactive, more space, more space, more space. However, given the opportunity, they don't actually want to do bodily harm. They will go back instead of going forward in a confrontation. Yeah, they don't actually want to put their money where their mouth is. Right. And that is a lot of it because dogs tend to be smarter than all the animals, smarter than people in that they don't actually want to get into fisticuffs because you can really get hurt doing that. (laughs) And sometimes we higher thinking humans don't think that all the way through. Right, right. So I've seen a, I don't know if it's a meme, but it's a picture of two dogs It's like one of those gated communities where the gate slides open and slides closed. Mm -hmm. So the gate is open halfway and the dogs are standing opposite of each other with the gate in between them fence fighting. But if you look two feet to the left, there's wide open space. So if they actually wanted to get in a knockdown drag down, they had the opportunity to have access to each other. But instead, they would prefer to have this huge display without any actual risk of Mm -hmm. bodily harm. Good. Ian Dunbar does a, I think he calls it a reactive dog class. Mm -hmm. And he does that off leash. Like Mm -hmm. his goal is to get those dogs off leash amongst each other. I hear everybody's heart rates increasing as I say this (laughs) within the first five to 15 minutes of class. Wow. However, all of those dogs are screened. Mm-hmm. And one of the deciding factors of whether or not you can be in this class is, has your dog actually done damage to anybody? Mm-hmm. Meaning, let's say I have somebody who comes to me and says, I own two dogs and they're fighting. Great. So I ask a thousand million questions. But one of the questions I keep circling around to is, how many times have they gotten to fisticuffs? And of those times, what if any damage was done? Right. So the prognosis is much better for a dog who's been in 150 fights and the worst damage anybody got was maybe some minor road rash scrapes on their face as opposed to a dog who's been in one fight and the dog he got in a fight with had to go to the hospital and get 50 stitches and a drain. Right. I'm going to ask a question about the dog that's been in 150 fights. Why in the heck has... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Has it been an Why would you give the opportunity to get right. in that situation? <laughs> yes. Okay. So we've got this very broad topic on the reactive dog. 
Let's take it and let's drill down. This is a huge topic. So let's look specifically at those dogs that are reactive, non-aggressive, and what might be some of the causes behind that and also what might be some of the solutions. Fabulous. So my experience has been 98% of that reactivity is in fact fear-based. Yes. The dog is afraid of something. Something is making that dog feel afraid, whether it's some tiny little chihuahua who's walking down the street and its owner wants it to meet every other dog it meets. However, all of the neighbors have labs and St. Bernard's and this tiny little dog is probably terrified of being stepped on by these much larger dogs Mm -hmm. whose feet are as big as he is. Yes. Many dogs quickly learn that the best defense is a good offense. Right. So if I can just be Mr. Tough Guy and scare that other dog away, I'm safe. Right. And then they don't have to get into that interaction that makes them scared. So a lot of it is what I see is fear-based, whether it's lack of early socialization in that first 16 weeks of life, or the dog had a negative experience. Like we thought Uncle Larry had a really fun dog and we all got together for Christmas, except his dog doesn't actually like other dogs and attacked our dog and our dog got hurt. So now our dog thinks, ooh, dog's not so good. Right. Or there's a second fear stage that happens around nine months. Mm -hmm. So sometimes things can go sideways in that nine month teenager mark. Let's be honest. Everything goes sideways when our dogs turn into teenagers. And I think valid, you know, we were talking a little bit off air. You can do all the right stuff in that zero to 16 weeks and still have that secondary fear period. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which I thought was just written on paper until my wire hair got to be about seven months old and she hit it like a brick wall. And I was like, but wait, I've done all the early socialization. Right. No, nope, it's a real work. thing and it yep. happens. It does. <laughs> in this drilling down, let's talk about, okay, so either we've had a bad experience in zero to 16 or we've hit a secondary fear period and or we've had a bad experience during that secondary period, whatever it is. How are we working them through that? What's our go forward process? So what did not work for me was to get after my dog because we all feel embarrassed when our dog has a nuclear meltdown in public, right? Everyone's looking, everyone's, you know, oh my God, what's the matter with her dog? She needs to train her dog. We can all hear the thought bubbles above everybody's head. We're embarrassed. We don't want our dog to act that way. I add a little extra stress on myself because I feel like I'm walking around with Mm -hmm. a giant sign. I'm a dog trainer. Right. (laughs) So I feel like even if I'm not wearing my dog training clothes, I feel like everybody still knows Mm -hmm. and they're all judging. Mm -hmm. Judgy, judgy. So I put pressure on myself as well. So what did not work for me was to say, get after my dog and say, no, stop that. Don't do that. Because all I successfully did was stress my dog out more. Mm Mm-hmm. That's all I really accomplished was I made her more stressed, which want to take a wild guess what the result of that was? More fear. I saw more of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. More fear, more anxiety. Mm -hmm. What do you do with all that fear and anxiety, but freak out? Mm -hmm. 
So that didn't work at my house. So a good example I can give is live out in the middle of nowhere in a house. I don't have a lot of neighbors. I don't have a lot of company come over. Was visiting my sister who lives in an apartment complex in Denver. Mm-hmm. All of the neighbor noises, like the right. neighbors are cooking. You can hear their pots and pans. Well, this is all new to my teenage wire hair. Right. She's not used to that much noise in the house. Danger, danger, danger. Which mm-hmm. if we were at my house and we heard those noises, yes, you are absolutely right. Somebody <laughs> needs to go check. If somebody's banging pots check. and pans when you're the only one there, that's a problem. <laughs> Right? Exactly. So in her defense, if we were at home, that would have been something that, yes, please let me know something strange is going on outside. The other thing was we have to walk on leash for all of our potty breaks. It's an apartment complex. Mm -hmm. So now we have all this foot traffic of all the other people. The apartment complex she lived in had a lot of Indian families. A lot of them wore the Indian garb, Mm -hmm. so they're dressed differently. They're wearing headgear. Mm -hmm. Because of the food they eat, they smell significantly different than what we eat at our house and what we smell like. And so when she would see this ethnicity that she didn't have an opportunity to see where we live, danger, danger, danger. It's an apartment complex. People are everywhere, and I have to potty my dog on leash outside. So by day two, I'm just so frizzy and frazzled. It was frustrating. It was embarrassing. There was no way around the potty breaks. What am I going to do? And then I thought, maybe take the advice of a dog trainer. Dog trainer. So I grabbed my high value treats and I stuck them in my pockets. And when we came outside, every time we saw somebody, I would just jam cookies in her mouth jamming those liver snaps, those hot dogs. And when we first started, I'm jamming them in between barking because she's still barking and I'm just shoving them down her throat. Like it's not, I'm offering it. I'm like jamming them down. Like can't bark if your mouth is full. (laughs) So my sister made the comment, well, why are you rewarding the barking? And it does look like that, right? My dog's barking and I'm feeding her treats. So positive reinforcement, I must be rewarding the barking. I said, I'm not, I'm actually counter conditioning. And she looked at me like, you're rewarding the barking. Why are you doing that? What a stupid thing to reward. Not kidding. Four potty breaks later, she would see somebody and she would turn and look at me. Right. Because I had changed her emotional response to the stimuli. Meaning if every time she saw one of the neighbors outside, she got a hot dog. She no longer felt fearful. She no longer felt anxious. She had warm, fuzzy feelings because you can't be happy and mad at the same time. You can't be scared and happy at the same time. I don't know. Menopausal women, I'm telling you, it's possible. (laughs) Oh, great. Things to look forward to. (laughs) But it changed her emotional response. And then I was able to drastically reduce how many treats I was using on potty breaks. And by the end of our stay, the only time I really used them is if we were passing people sharing the same sidewalk. Right. And I wasn't getting any of the barking that I got the first two days. This is really applicable for a lot of people, right? We're all going to be headed out to the garden here pretty soon. You know, we're all going to come from places that aren't downtown Manhattan. And a lot of dogs are going to have a lot of these sorts of responses. And this gives us a tool that we can use in that sort of a situation. 
Yeah. And it has to be high value stuff. Now, here's the thing. We talked about sub thresholds. So it doesn't work if your dog is so far over a threshold that they can't even take treats. Mm -hmm. Because that's a good way to gauge how stressed out your dog is. Because if they get so stressed out, they can't eat. And it doesn't matter if it's pate or liver. They just are so over a threshold, they cannot eat. And so then all you can do is pull the escape hatch and get out of there and get back to a place where your dog can think and breathe again, because that's just too much. Now, you made mention of the garden right around the corner, Mm -hmm. and some of the dogs haven't been in that situation. High traffic area. High traffic, lots of people, lots of noise, lots of pigeons. The first time I went with a wire hair, she'd stop and point a pigeon in the middle of the crosswalk. I was sure we were going to die, like every single time. Every single time. So what are some tricks, some ideas, some planning that listeners can use going into the garden with a dog who is not conditioned to that type of environment? You need to start at home. If we're prepping for the garden, yep, prepping for you the garden. need to start three months ago and be prepping in okay, your downtown We've area. We've got two weeks. <laughs> Come on, work with me. <laughs> okay, so then if your dog is that reactive, here's just the bottom line cut and dry. If your dog is that reactive, then you're not going to be able to get them garden ready in two weeks. It mm-hmm. is highly unlikely that... If they can't do a small town dog show without reactivity, Mm -hmm. they're not going to be garden ready in two weeks. So then your strategy becomes management. How much of this stimulation can I cut down on my dog? Yes. If it's a dog that you can put in a crate and cover the crate with a blanket and wheelie them from the hotel to the garden, please do that Mm -hmm. for your giant breeds, because Mm -hmm. obviously you're not going to put a Great Dane or, you know. (laughs) I'm not wheeling my Great Dane in a truck. No, that's not working. (laughs) Take them in on the horse trailer in Manhattan. For those dogs, they used to make, it was called a calming cap. It looked like dog goggles, but it severely restricted their vision. Like blinders for a horse? Yes, exactly. Ah, wow. The effect was the same as if you throw a blanket over a horse's head to get them out of a burning barn. Huh. You take that vision away and then you can lead them on leash to where they need to go or to some place that's less visually overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're still on the market. You'll have to do a Google search. I saw them at a conference 12 years ago, mm-hmm. so I don't know if there was enough demand that they're still making them, mm-hmm. but people are really creative. They could maybe Jimmy rig something. Yeah, and in this vein of management, there are a variety, any number and direction of options for management from CBD oils all the way up to, we don't do those things, drugging dogs. Talk to us about the things that are good and bad in that situation. I don't have enough experience on CBD oil to make any kind of statements. I'm telling you, it's miracle. It's hot here too, but I have not read enough, talked to enough people, done enough research. I've used it. It is amazing. There is a product. I just lived through it in this last weekend. 
a dog new to the scene, never been off the farm, go to the dog show, you know, brain Oof. exploding, right? Right. And was doing okay, but struggling with it. And I sent the handler to a particular vendor I knew with a particular product. It's like a wax almost that goes between their pads. Oh, yep. interesting. It's absorbed through the pads. It's not internal. And it just is, I'm going with Miracle. It's amazing stuff. It's out here and people are talking about it a lot. It's kind of promoted as the cure-all for everything. I have some questions. And until I talk to somebody who can talk me through the questions that I have, Mm -hmm. I'm just not comfortable saying anything either way. I do know that they are using melatonin as part of a protocol for anxious dogs as well. Mm-hmm. So that I know much more about than CBD oil. And so talk to me about the melatonin because I've used the CBD and had success. Talk to me about the melatonin and how that works. So the melatonin in people like we do right before bed to kind of help us relax and go to sleep. And so they're using it in anxious dogs to kind of have that same wind down for bed calming effects. Mm. The other thing that I use a ton of is lavender oil. Yes. Because it has a calming effect on the dogs too. And oftentimes I'll put a drop inside each ear flap, especially for my floppy ear dogs. Yep. Because it's close to the nose, but they're not going to be able to lick it off. Maybe a basset hound, but not very many. No, I've actually seen lavender oil used also in the pads and on the ears with success. Fabulous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or cover the crate with a blanket that's been misted with lavender oil. Mm -hmm. Now, all of these things are great tools. That being said, they don't cure the root problem. So, yes, these are great things to use in conjunction with the real dirty hard work of resolving the core issue. Because if you're just using CBD oil or melatonin or lavender, it's kind of like just taking pain pills for back pain. It's like putting frosting on a burnt cake. It might mask the pain, but it doesn't do anything to resolve that bulging disc. Right. Right. So I'm a huge proponent of, yes, those are great. And a lot of times I recommend that in conjunction with this training protocol that we're going to do. But the real cure is fixing the core problem, which is your dog is anxious or afraid and they don't know what they're supposed to be doing in that scenario. Right. So they're just reacting badly. Right. They just know they need more space and they're Mm going to get it by whatever means necessary. Right. And so giving them things to do, which that's the other catch 22 about using punishment to extinguish unwanted behaviors. Great. You take away the behavior you didn't like. But did you tell your dog what they're supposed to be doing instead? Because we all know you cannot break a bad habit without replacing it with a better one. Yep. It just doesn't work. Right. You'll go back to smoking. You'll go back to chewing your nails. We go back to those habits if we don't have something better to do instead. And the bright side is when you spend more time focusing on, here's what I want you to do, that decreases the stress level because your dog feels like they have some success. Mm -hmm. Oh, I am doing it right. Instead of feeling like everything's wrong, 
I don't have any control over anything. Right. And doing your best in the beginning to keep your dog out of situations that they aren't ready for yet. Right. Yet being the operative word. Yeah, exactly. I like Watch Me. I teach it to all of my dogs. I teach it to all of my students in my handling class. It's a version of what you're talking about with redirecting, but I actually put a name on it. And that, to me, if I can get that dog to concentrate on me and make eye contact with me, that's the same thing. And it works great because it has multiple uses, even in the show ring. (laughs) Yes, and I don't use my Watch Me as much as I used to. How crazy is that? It's my favorite thing in the world. Now, I say that, but I pay top dollar for voluntary eye contact. Mm -hmm. So I'm getting an uncued eye contact. Now, here's the thing, because Watch Me is great. It breaks your dog's visual stimulus of the thing that makes them nervous. Now, if you're going to ask them to look away from the thing that makes them scared, it is your very important responsibility to protect your space circle. Mm Mm-hmm. Which means if your dog is scared of men in hats, then you need to make sure that all men in hats stay outside of your space bubble when your dog is watching you. Hmm. Because otherwise you degrade trust. If you hate tarantulas and I ask you to look away from the tarantula and then put it on your shoulder, Mm -hmm. we're probably not going to be friends anymore. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually a really great point talk to people about what you think of as your space bubble. And I know it's somewhat dependent on the dog, right? Like some dogs, it's 100 yards. Some dogs, it's 100 feet. Some dogs, it's 100 inches. You are absolutely correct. It depends on the dog. My personal space bubble, me, myself, honestly, it's pretty small. I'm pretty loud and take up a lot of space. So I'm not quite as sensitive to people standing closely to me. Unless it's dark and the person close to me is some strange man wearing an overcoat. So my space bubble is pretty small. My English setter is pretty nonchalant about everything. My wire hair is a little bit different. And so what I do is I listen to what she's telling me. Mm -hmm. If she's worried about the guy in the hat, then we've worked hard enough over the past five years, six years, that our space bubble is that kind of three to five foot radius. Mm -hmm. I am quite confident that that person can get within five feet, which when you're in the grocery store, that's about how close you get to somebody you don't know. That's close a stranger. (laughs) Right? Yeah. So I'm pretty confident that we can be in that proximity and it's all going to be just fine. Good. Now, I have also found that with my dog out in public, is a whole other ball game than at my house, which Mm -hmm. stems back to, I don't get much company. I don't get much foot traffic in my house. And you have a breed whose job is to guard hearth and home amongst others. Yes. That aspect, I think we need to round table for another time because that is a whole other conversation. Right. But yes, I listen to my dog and I adjust accordingly because I want to be a good listener and it's her and me like we are the team and if i'm a bad team player right then she's not going to trust me to take care of her and that's my job right that's my job is to take care of my dog now with dogs i can get in very very close proximity with other dogs Mm -hmm. what i start the kind of mental rundown that i'm doing as dogs approach is is that dog going to enjoy my dog's company 
because I spend a lot of time thinking about other people's dogs. Right. Because sometimes their owners aren't. Yeah, don't. We were at the I Love My Dog Expo one year. Arrow was four or five months old. So she's a ding, 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 bouncy little thing on the string. And somebody came over with their older dog and wanted to do on-leash greetings, which, first of all, I don't do. Second of all, as that person approached with their dog, their dog's eyes got bigger and bigger Mm. and bigger. And they were like, I don't want anything to do with that squirrely little bounce on a leash. Mm -hmm. And as she approached, I just started backing up and I said, oh, you probably don't want my bouncy little puppy all over you. And then I just exited the stage left. Right. So sometimes I create more space because I feel like the other dog wants more space. Mm-hmm. And sometimes my dog gives a strange reaction. Like I'm approaching somebody and I think it all looks okay. Their dog isn't paying overly a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. But Arrow starts turning sideways and I see, you know, more whites of her eyes. And I think, huh. She must know something I don't know. Like she must be picking up on something yeah. that I'm not. Goes back up to on. listening to our dogs and their body language, and I think that that's really, really important and a topic that we will carry into another <laughs> session soon. Make a list. I appreciate your time, and I do think that we can have some opportunity for listeners for other topics going forward and separation anxiety and some of the other things that we want to talk about. Yeah. The takeaway I want people to really have is if you have a reactive dog, you want to be at a distance that your dog isn't reacting and you want to pair positive associations with whatever that is. So that means if your dog hates, let's say boxers, then every time your dog sees a boxer, they should be getting rapid fire filet mignon. And when the boxer's gone, no more filet mignon. Right. And then over time, you can gradually decrease that distance from two blocks to one block to four houses to two houses. Because what our goal is, is to shrink our space bubble and build enough trust that your dog's like, okay, mom, I don't trust that dog, but I trust you and I can work in proximity to that dog. Right. Exactly. Or dad. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Kristen, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. You have been wonderful, and I look forward to having more conversations soon. All right. Thank you for having me. Good Dog is a secure online community that advocates for dog breeders, educates the public, helps informed puppy buyers connect directly with certified good breeders, and promotes responsible dog ownership. Good Dog is offering its good breeders special advanced access to the video recordings and transcripts for the full three-part Q&A webinar series with Dr. Hutchinson. All you have to do is sign up as a breeder at gooddog.com slash join. That is g-o-o-d-d-o-g dot com slash join. Or click the link in the show notes.